you have a Bible with you this morning, Hebrews chapter 10 would be a good place to go, though I'm sure you've noticed that uh, we have diverted from our normal path here in your notes page. There are some blanks. Uh, I'll give you a few minutes here at the front end of the sermon to get warmed up, your ears ready, and uh, we'll fill those in together. Um, We'll do fair amount of turning this morning. If you were in our business meeting a couple of weeks ago, you know that I mentioned something that I think is important to the life of our body here um, in this particular stage at Rock Mill Bible Church, which is that we could, I think all of us, uh, learn a little bit more about what it means to be encouraging. I don't want to say it's a particularly discouraging season here at our church, but I know that as much of what gets done here is done by volunteers and how extraordinarily busy everyone is, that it becomes difficult to come in week after week and to serve in areas where we don't often feel appreciated, and that's not just a feeling that is pervasive, I think, in churches, but also in homes and in businesses and in life in general. And for whatever maladies... Uh, our culture is facing we know that there is great hope that the body of christ can embrace what it means to be more encouraging Uh, let me uh, recommend a couple of resources to you the first is this little book Uh, it is from start to finish uh, about 150 pages very little pages the relentless encourager bringing life to others through what we say it is a very simple book there's nothing in this book probably that you haven't been introduced to before And yet it is absolutely one of the best things that I've read uh, this year in the somewhat voluminous amount of reading I've done in 2019. Let me encourage that to you. It's about seven bucks on Amazon. I have a copy and you can borrow it if you like. That's a phenomenal resource. The other thing I want to introduce you to this morning is a sermon that I didn't write. I've written parts of it and changed some illustrations and a few notes here and there. But when I was a student at Dallas Seminary in the spring of 2006, we had a guy come and speak in chapel named Phil Tuttle. Phil Tuttle is the president of Walk Through the Bible Ministries, an incredible Bible teacher. And throughout the four days that he was there in chapel, he talked about four different people from the Bible that he called his ministry mentors, people that had stuck with him through the ages. And one of them, uh, later in the week, uh, that he talked about was Barnabas and how Barnabas was one of his great ministry mentors as Barnabas was a relentless encourager. So this morning we're going to talk a little bit about encouragement. We're going to talk a little bit about Barnabas, not only because he's written this incredible book that we're studying on Sunday mornings, but also because he embodies, maybe as well as anyone else, in the entirety of the New Testament canon what it means to be encouraging. There's a big idea that emerges out of the passages that we'll look at this morning, and we'll be in several. We won't just be in Hebrews. We'll be all over the New Testament It's something like this. Anyone can build up the body of Christ by being an encourager. Anyone can build up the body of Christ by being an encourager. Now, there are lots of ways that people contribute to what's going on here at the church. Some are big givers financially. Maybe you have a job, you make a lot of money, you have those resources, you're able to devote and giving fiscally to what's going on here, the endeavors of the church. That's wonderful. Some of you contribute by having uh, enough free time to come out here and multiple days a week working hard some in ways that people see and some in ways that people don't and you have that time and that faculty and you're able to contribute 
by giving of your time. Some of you have immense theological educations and you've decided to employ those as a gift to our body from Bible college and seminary and graduate school and on and on and but you don't need any of that to be an encourager you don't need to be wealthy you don't need to be brilliant you don't need to have all the time in the world small moments that will cost you almost nothing can change the complexion of our church because anyone can build up the body of Christ by being an encourager. Now, the New Testament talks about encouragement an awful lot. A passage that we read earlier this morning, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, talks about this difference between those who have no hope because they have not given their lives to Jesus Christ and therefore have nothing to look forward to after they have fallen asleep, the metaphor that Paul uses there, he says in verse 6, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we are belonging to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet of a hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore... In light of these great truths, in light of the hope that we have in the salvation granted to us by Jesus Christ, what do we do? Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He says this is already indicative of life in the church there in Thessalonica. Let me ask you, 2019, if Paul were writing to Rocky Mount Bible Church and he were describing the culture that is pervasive within our church body, would he say of us, like he said of the Thessalonians, that you are being encouraging as you are already doing? Something to consider. Another passage important to this discussion about what it means to be encouraging, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, we get this, and this is one of my favorite passages in the entirety of Scripture. And so when we finally make our way to Hebrews 10, we're going to camp in chapter 10 for a long time. But we discover these great truths, starting in verse 14. For by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That is, he has made holy those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is the forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now there's great, rich, redemptive theology there. Soteriology of the depths, the likes of which hardly any human mind could even partially conceive. But then he follows it up with something really practical. Therefore, in light of all of that, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider and let us consider 
how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That is the day of the Lord, I think. Now, it's interesting. I think almost all of us at some point or another have heard verse 24, 25, not ripped out of context but maybe recontextualized to support one of these sermons about how important it is that you are at church I don't like preaching to an empty room y'all you better show up on Sunday right I'm sure you've heard something like that but that's not exactly the argument that the author of Hebrews is making here in Hebrews 10. It's not just that you have the responsibility to show up, that there's some eternal checklist where God is monitoring week after week whether or not you're here. He gives it instead very practical terms and boundaries. The reason why we need you to show up, he says, in part, is because you play an essential role in encouraging the people around you. You have the opportunity, week after week, to show up here and make a difference in someone's life, not by giving them your money or giving them all of your time or giving them all of your energy, just by being encouraging. Now, uh, let me ask you for a moment. Did you just ponder this question in your head? Do you think there's anyone in this room who needs encouragement, who's going through something difficult, that maybe things at home are hard or things at work are hard or there's some circumstance fiscal or emotional or spiritual that they're going through or they need help? Obviously so. Obviously there are people in this room, whether you know it or not, there are people in this room who need the encouragement that only you were told can provide by showing up, engaging the body and being a part of what's going on here. It's part of the rights and responsibilities of living in community. Some people it's going to be really easy to be encouraging to, and others maybe not so much. But you're not ancillary. You're not unimportant. When you're gone, we collectively are the lesser for it. We need you here. And God knew that, and that's why he gave you to us. Now, take a look at what he says in verse 25, because this is interesting here. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see that? That the further and further we get into history, and the closer and closer we get to the second coming of Jesus Christ, Barnabas says it's all the more important that we be encouraging as we're going to need it more and more. Now, it's unlikely that I'm ever going to run a marathon, Right? Uh, possible things happen uh, but unlikely but imagine where you are in your life in your sneakers just for a moment thinking about running a marathon it's 26.2 miles right isn't that the length there now at the very first moments of the race the starters pistol goes off and you launch out it would be nice to be encouraged then don't you think all right, here we go, I can do it. But you know, for the first 100 yards, I think I could run a marathon. <laughs> I tell you what, I really need the encouragement. Uh, mile 26.1, as they are dragging my near lifeless body over the line. That's where I need the encouragement the most. 
That's where the people who think they have absolutely nothing left in them are sustained by the cheers and the applause and the encouragement of the people on the lines. You can do it. Let's go. Come on. I know you've got it just a little more. Here we go. You're almost there. And this is what Barnabas says about the necessity of encouragement. As we get closer and closer to the imminent return of Jesus Christ, we're going to need encouragement more and more. We need to encourage one another. The need for encouragement increases as time goes on. And finally, we see how vital encouragement is in Hebrews chapter 3, a passage that we've already been in. So turn just a couple of pages back to Hebrews chapter 3. He says in verse 12, Take care, brothers, by extension, sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And you'll know, this is one of the great themes of Hebrews. Don't fall away. Hold fast to the confession. With all your might, the last ounce of strength, God will get you through. Hold on. But exhort. Another reasonable way to translate that word, encourage one another. Every day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's important not only to encourage one another as time goes on, it's important to encourage one another because encouragement helps to keep us from sin, to keep us from deceit, and to keep us from falling away. This is one of the things that we've argued all throughout the book of Hebrews, that God will get you through, persevere, hold on, you're going to make it to the end. How do we hold on? We hold on in part. We fight off deceit, we fight off disbelief, we fight off sin through the encouragement that God has given us through the other members here in the body of Christ. How are you going to make it through? You're going to make it through in part because of the people sitting right beside you. Because like in the last miles of the race, they're standing on the side and they're saying, you're going to make it, it's going to be all right, just a little bit further, you can go on. I'm going to be there when you get done at the end. Just keep going. Hold fast. That's how they're encouraging one another. And he says, interestingly here, twice in the same verse, today, do it today. Don't wait for tomorrow. Let me ask you. Honest. Raise your hand. How many of you have encouraged someone else in this room today? Anybody? One, two, three, four. The rest of you have 12 hours in 33 minutes not to be living in disobedience to Hebrews chapter 3, okay? Today, you need to do it today. Don't wait. What are you waiting for? It doesn't cost you anything. Let's be encouraging. All right. Well, who teaches us about encouragement better than Barnabas? Barnabas, the poster child of encouragement in the New Testament, teaches us an awful lot. In fact, if you're in Acts chapter 11, you would find this in verse 24. This is his title. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. That which we would have read uh, if there were such things as headstones in the first century of the ancient New Eastern world of Barnabas would have been, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. May we all die and find that written on our headstones, should we not? This is precisely the kind of thing that we're looking for when we are looking for elders here at the church. We look through all of those pieces of data that are given to us in Titus and 1 Timothy and 
about all the qualifications for elders and deacons. What we're looking for is somebody like Barnabas, a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and many were added to the Lord. It's what we're looking for in deacons. It's what we're looking for in Sunday school teachers. It's what we're looking for in the people who vacuum the fellowship hall after we have meetings. It is the ethos of what we're looking for in those who will serve here at Rocky Mount Bible Church. We want encouragers, just like Barnabas was encouraging. I want a church full of people that we could say that they were good, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. It's what I pray for you, that this would be true of your life. It's what I pray for myself, that it would be true in my life. Now, how do we do it? Practically, how do we do it? Uh, We've seen some of the theology here, and I don't want the whole thing to be just a theology lesson. Practically, in the example that Barnabas sets for us, how do we go about being encouraging? And so here's where you get those blanks in the bottom half of your notes. We start out this way. He recognized a need, and he met it. He recognized a need, and he met it. This is the first thing we learn about Barnabas here. If you're in Acts chapter 4, And we're going to flip around Acts here for the next few minutes. If you want to turn there, that's great. If not, I'll just read it to you. In Acts chapter 4, we know the situation of what was going on there in Jerusalem. It's Passover. The Holy Spirit has come. People from all over the ancient Near Eastern world have gathered in Jerusalem to worship there at Passover. Many of them have been confirmed into the body of Jesus Christ. They're following him, but, you know, uh, the longer that they're there, the more dollars that they have spent. There's no ATMs in Jerusalem in the first century. It's hard to get through the next few days and weeks as we figure out what we're supposed to be all about, this newly spirit-empowered body of Christ. So we find in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, this is how they took care of each other. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles, what? Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, apparently Barnabas wasn't the only person who did this, but Barnabas is the only person who specifically mentioned here by name in verse, uh, chapter uh, 4, verses 32 and following, right? It's not even his name. His name is Joseph, right? Joe, the guy from Cyprus. This is who he is in the New Testament. But apparently he is so overwhelming in his ability to encourage the people around him that they change his name. Barnabas, son of encouragement. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, we had a secretary who worked in the office who was one of the meanest women I have ever met in my life. Um, She just hated kids which makes you either awful or perfect for working in a high school. And her name was Dolores Reardon. And the reason I remember that name is uh, because there was almost no one who was able to escape her wrath. But I took Spanish, and I learned something 
uh, about word origins there. Many of the things that we know come from Latin and French. But do you know what the Spanish word Dolores means? Uh, really close. Pain. It means pain. So uh, Maria uh, de los Dolores, right? Uh, Mary of Sorrows. Uh, you'll see a lot of those churches in Mexico and Spain and other Spanish-speaking countries. Um, but I just learned this, this word means pain. And so I remember being like a junior in high school and it dawning on me, uh, Dolores Reardon, right? Pain, rear, pain in the rear. You can see how some names just fit. Son of encouragement, it fits Barnabas. This is who he is. Joseph, we're changing your name. We're not even going to call you Joe anymore. We're just calling you Barney. We love who this guy is. He recognized a need and he met it. What needs are you going to meet this week? What needs are you going to meet this week? There may be people in this room who need exactly what you have. I was thinking especially, we've got some, we've got some young moms in here with some really young kids. We've got some moms with babies in here. Talk about someone who might just need a helping hand, right? To bring them dinner. Jeff and Teresa Everett, I loved when um, Bobby and Brittany had their baby. He just went over and mowed their yard. And they don't have a yard like I do. They've got like 35 acres out there, right? And he went out there and mowed, and he mowed it twice. That's just one less thing that Bobby had to do. There was a need, and he met it. You may, not, you may not even have young kids, right? You, there are people in here who have older kids. They might need your help too. My mom will tell you, I'm a handful. She needs your help. Maybe it's a financial need. I've seen people in this congregation who could not pay their bills and other people in this room stepped up without anybody knowing and paid those bills. I've seen people in this room who needed cars and people without anyone else knowing just stepped in and said, hey, I've got it. Go ahead and take it. Don't tell anybody. I've seen incredible things. And I'm sure I only know a fraction of them. Because people had a need and others just stepped in and fulfilled it. It doesn't have to be money. I, I want to be clear about that. Um, you know that old phrase, uh, sticks and stones my break, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the stupidest thing. You get a broken bone, you set it in a cast, a few months later, you're good to go. There is hardly anything that will stick with you more than a discouraging word. It can form who you are for life. There, there are some of us who have maybe grown up in homes, and, and it wasn't just that you were browbeat. You just wanted an encouraging word, and you never got one. And you know, mom and dad just a little withholding or you've been in relationships like that or the dynamic with your kids maybe isn't what you always hoped it would be and you just want them to say something, anything encouraging this is one of the things I find extraordinary about how God the Father interacts with us through scripture how not withholding he is, how generous he is. From the very start of this book to the very end to remind us, you are mine, you are loved, I have a plan for you, I'm never going to leave you, I'm going to carry you through to the end, I love you so much, here is my son, here is his death and his new life so that you might, he is profuse by speaking words of encouragement into us. 
one of the most discouraging moments of my entire life. I'm a second-year student in seminary, and I was convinced in college that God had called me to preach. This is what he wanted me to do. And so I take my very first preaching course at the seminary, and the very first sermon uh, that I deliver is nerve-wracking, right? So there's about 15 of us in the room, and uh, the way that they teach you to write sermons at Dallas Seminary is that you manuscript the entire thing, word for word, and you memorize it, and you are not allowed to have any notes with you when you go up to preach in your preaching class. And the professor sits in a little glass booth in the back of the room, and he times you. And for every, like, 10 seconds you go over the time limit, you get docked a letter grade. And so at the, like, if you've got to preach 20 minutes, at the 20-minute mark, he's got a, one of those big, long paint stirs with a stop sign stapled to the end, and he just smacks the glass there in the back of the room. <laughs> and so while you're preaching, he's in the little glass booth, and he's got a recording deal, and they're taking a DVD of you preaching, and he's laying an audio track over your sermon telling you all the things that you've done wrong so that you can listen to it, because everybody wants to do that. And then you got to write a report about how you would do better next time. So this is our first time, and everybody is just absolutely right. I mean, so the day that I have to go, I'm the last one to go. And I have taught in our college and career class during my college years. So I, I, maybe I feel a little more confident than I should, but I'm still really pretty terribly nervous. And our professor isn't there. He's got a sub in that day, a friend of his who pastors a church in the area, and uh, he's a real uh, Dolores Reardon, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and he gets into the booth, and uh, after every guy gets up and gets down, he comes out, and he, uh, hey, you did a good job, way to go, first time, yada, yada. And I'm the last one to go, and we're like 30 seconds out from the end of class, and I, and I get done, and he walks out, and he goes, well, uh, Mr. Abner, uh, I see how you preach that sermon, but I would, f just for me personally, I, I prefer to preach biblical sermons. And instantly crushed. And then I went home, and uh, I had just gotten married, just gotten married. And uh, I listened to the audio track like I had to for my homework for that. And it was withering. And I thought, God has called me to do this thing. I feel convinced of it, but what if I can't do it? What if it's just I'm the most miserable? What am I going to do now? Do I finish school? <laughs> I just, I have no marketable skills. <laughs> and so by the time that I have to preach again, this is my second sermon there in seminary, I'm sitting on the little bench outside the classroom, and I'm there a half an hour early, and I'm so nervous, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to vomit there in the hallway. And there was an old professor named John Reed, and he was about 80 years old, and I don't even know if he taught anymore. I think his sole purpose that he had excavated for himself at that point in his life is he just showed up to encourage people. I'd never had him for a course. I only knew him from a distance, and he didn't know me from Adam. And he sat down on the bench and he said, uh, things don't look great. And I said, no. And I told him a little bit of the story. And he's an old man, thin. And I had a hard time just navigating the hallway. And he put his arm around me and he said, look, we're going to spend a moment, you and me, 
And this is what we're going to pray. We're going to pray that you would love the people that you're about to preach to. And I said, it's just a classic. He said, it doesn't matter. We're going to pray that you learn to love them. And if you will stick really close to God's word, you're going to be all right. This is going to be all right. And I tell you, it was life-giving. And I think that I can look back on that exact moment and say, that helped keep me there, and that brought me here. There are people in this room who just need you to put your arm around them and tell them, I'm praying for you. It's going to be okay. This is going to end well. Barnabas saw a need and he met it. Secondly, he recognized faith and he nurtured it. He recognized faith and he nurtured it. Uh, Acts chapter 9, we're introduced, uh, reintroduced to Barnabas. And you're familiar with the story here. Uh, we're first introduced to a man named Saul who would later be known as Paul the Apostle. He's been a violent persecutor of Christians. He has made a reputation for himself both inside the church and more broadly in Judaism there from Damascus to Jerusalem as a great persecutor of Christians. He was complicit in the death of Stephen. He is a villain to the church. And then he's met on the road by the Lord Jesus Christ and recommissioned as an apostle to take the good news of Jesus Christ not only to the Jews but to the Gentile world. He writes almost as much of the New Testament as anyone. He's had as great of an impact on the history of the faith as anyone has except our Lord Jesus Christ. But the early church wants absolutely nothing to do with him. And you can understand why, right? The most ardent apologist against the faith in Jesus who physically saw the demise and death of many who followed Christ. Nobody wants anything to do with him. So in verse 23 of Acts chapter 9, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul and they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his own disciples took him by night and let him down through the opening of the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. His own people hate him, and the people to whom he has been called minister have zero trust in him whatsoever. Verse 27. But Barnabas. I absolutely love this about Barnabas. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord and he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Who would stick up for poor Paul? Barnabas alone. He recognized faith and he nurtured it. Whose faith can you nurture right now? Who is at the beginning of this great escapade we call faith that you could put your arm around and go, I know you're going to make it. Here is the truth. Let me remind you of it. Let me model living it out for you. Just a little belief, just a little hope. It's going to be all right. I'm going to be here for you as you learn to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Baffled a couple of weeks ago, 
Uh, I, I know for a couple of years now, Kanye West has been doing these Sunday services where he comes to a church and he plays his own music and a couple of weeks ago it comes out Kanye says I've given my life to Jesus Christ I've repented of my sin I intend to follow him and people have said that look he has these Sunday services and people are actually giving their lives to Jesus Christ same story we heard with Justin and Haley Bieber same thing we heard about Shia LaBeouf right that they have given their lives to Jesus they're following him they're doing their most to live a distinct life in a very dark and desperate place in Hollywood and give glory to Jesus and I am an overwhelming skeptic. And I am chastised by Barnabas. Paul had done more egregious things than any celebrity on the planet to the detriment of the church. And Barnabas threw his arm around him and said, I vouch for that guy. Now, now think about that just for a moment. Imagine we all got in our cars and we drove down to the hospital and we went over there to the, the wing where all the women give birth and we found a baby and we're holding the baby in our arms, newborn, and it's got 10 fingers and 10 toes and two eyes and a little button nose. And we say, you know, it looks like a baby. Uh, maybe it's human, but I'm just not sure. You know, I, I've got some questions here. I don't know if in a few years it's actually going to, you know, develop into anything real. Let me just walk outside and lay it in a snowbank. Let's come back in two years and see if it actually pans out. They would send you to prison for doing such an egregious thing. But in that stupid analogy, what we're saying we would do physically is something that we do spiritually all the time. Writing people off in hopelessness that they will ever develop any kind of genuine faith. Not Barnabas. How did Barnabas encourage the church? He recognized faith and he nurtured it. Go ahead and take a look at chapter 11. Chapter 11. He doesn't just do this on an individual basis. He does this for whole churches. New church. Brand new church in Antioch. We don't know at all what's going on. Verse 22. Verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so they sent who? Who to check it out? Who to encourage them and nurture their faith? They sent Barnabas. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them, that is, encouraged them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. If I must err, let me err on the side of believing that the Lord is really doing something in the lives of people for whom I may not he recognized faith and he nurtured God. I prayed that that would be true for me. And I prayed that that would be true for you. If real love hopes all things and believes all things, let us love these new believers in our midst and really believe that they might be the next Paul, the next game changer in the history of the church, just like Barnabas did. Thirdly, thirdly, he recognized potential and he developed it. He recognized potential and he developed it. What did he do in Acts chapter 11 when he found that new church at Antioch? 
He went in, seeing the incredible things that they might be, and continued to teach them, exhorting them to holiness, exhorting them to Christ's life, exhorting them to good works. He didn't just say, man, I hope this works out really well. He invested in them. He had some stuff going on that he was investing in the church there in Antioch. There's real discipleship happening there. He's investing in them to see if they might grow as serving disciples in the faith. Barnabas saw their potential and encouraged them mightily. Whose potential have you seen lately, and how have you invested in that? Let me ask you. Whose potential do you have an eye on, and have you asked the question, how can I get more involved in encouraging that person in developing their faith, in bringing them along, in teaching them, and in modeling for them what it means to follow Jesus Christ. I had this really harebrained notion for a long time that I never really had a pastor who was personally involved in my discipleship, which was a really poor thing. Because I actually had a youth pastor who was there for me. And he was very clever about it. Um, we had church throughout the week and it was great and he taught and solid stuff, no doubt. But also he had a habit of every time he needed to do something at church, some kind of work project, uh, he would pick up me and maybe a couple other guys and he would take us to church and we would work with him. So if we had to fix drywall at church because a game of dodgeball got out of hand and somebody pushed their elbow through the Man, we followed him to Lowe's and we got in the church van and we got a sheet of drywall and we learned how to patch drywall in the youth room. If we need to put a coat of paint on something, if there was a big youth activity and the next day he had to come back and clean it up, man, we went with him. And I thought, man, this guy is really needy. <laughs> He's got me working all the time. But it wasn't just about doing the stuff. That was just pretense to get a small group of guys together and to put them to work so that he could show them what it means to serve the church, to love his wife, to father his kids, and ultimately to follow Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be here, I don't believe, if he hadn't seen something, anything, and invested in me. I love this great story that Alistair Begg tells about uh, being a young preacher. You know, Alistair Begg is my favorite preacher to listen to on the radio um, and had a big influence on me getting into the, getting into this business. <laughs> um, originally from Scotland, he pastors a big church in Cleveland, Ohio, but early on, he was invited to um, come back uh, to Scotland to preach at this missions conference. Uh, it went fine by all accounts in the room, but he thinks this is absolutely horrible, the worst thing he's ever done. He cannot wait for the exact moment when he can split out of the room and get out of touch. He's just... But an old missionary catches him right off the side of the stage, and he goes, um, you did good. You did real good. He goes, well, you know, I was miserable, and I'm just crusty about it, and I... Oh, no, no. Hey, sometimes it's hamburger, and sometimes it's steak. But we all need to eat, and you fed us very well tonight. Ten years go by, and they ask him to come back. And so he's back on the exact same stage, and now he's an accomplished guy. He's on the radio in a big church and all that, and he absolutely bombs the thing again. I mean, just tanks. It's embarrassing. He cannot wait to get off the stage. I'm never coming back. It's over. And right as he's getting ready to walk off the stage, 
the same older missionary, now nearing the day in which he would meet our Lord, grabs him by the arm. And he pulls him in close and he whispers in his ear, oh, it was steak tonight. It was steak tonight. Whose potential are you developing? I love in Acts 15, and we won't read it all, but you know the story. There's a fight between Paul and Barnabas. There's a young man named Mark. Barnabas wants to take Mark along with him. But Mark's been flaky. Mark hasn't always been tried and true in service, especially to Paul. And Paul says, no, 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 no. I'm not taking Mark with me. I don't trust Mark. Mark's flaky. And Barnabas says, that's fine. I'll take him with me. Do you remember that? Now, now who, who was right there in this grand fight between Paul and Barnabas? Well, now Paul is right that the gospel is too important to entrust to those who are flaky, right? But Barnabas is also right that our God is a God of second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances. And of all the people in the New Testament, shouldn't Paul have been behind the second chance movement? If Barnabas hadn't taken a chance on Mark, we may never have had Mark's gospel. And you know what happens, and I love this, at the very end of Paul's life? And he says, oh, I, I need these scrolls and I need this. And also bring to me who? Bring to me Mark, because he's very dear to me. Whose potential can you develop this week? This is the question, among the others that we've been given. Very briefly in our study of our grand author here of the book of Hebrews. He saw needs and he met them. He recognized faith and he nurtured it. He saw potential and he developed it. And Father, I pray this morning for all of those in this room that you would help us to see people who need encouraged. Open the faculties that you have given us to recognize those who need our encouragement and then embolden us to meet those needs. I pray that you would help them and me to take calculated but free risks on the kinds of people that maybe we have been ignoring. Make us encouraging, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.